Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. Farah Pandit is a leading expert on countering violent extremism. Farah has served as a political appointee under three separate presidential administrations, both political parties. She's also the first ever special representative to Muslim communities. Farah is often referred to as a diplomatic entrepreneur. Currently, she serves as a senior fellow at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government, and she is an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Farah has written a new book entitled How We Win, How Cutting-Edge Entrepreneurs, Political Visionaries, Enlightened Business Leaders, and Social Media Mavens Can Defeat the Extremist Threat. In the book, she provides a nonpartisan assessment of what governments can do, corporations can do, and we as individuals can do to stop radicalization and how we should think about terrorism and the challenges we face today. Farah, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Really happy to have you. Let's start with the premise of the book, How We Win. What is the most important message that you are trying to convey with this book? I know that solutions are available and affordable right now to stop the us versus them ideology that's permeating our country and the world. I was surprised that the premise in the book is not that people are, individuals are attracted to extremism because of poverty or some of the other reasons that we have believed or been told, but it's something quite different. Talk a bit about that. Well, as special representative to Muslim communities, I had the opportunity to travel all over the world. And I was really shocked to find that whether Muslims in Muslim majority countries or Muslims that lived as minorities, if you were under the age of 30, this means millennials and Generation Z, that there was one data point that was connecting all of them, and that was a crisis of identity. And these young kids were navigating what it meant to be Muslim in a post-9 11 world, asking questions about who they are and what it meant to be Muslim and what the difference between culture and religion was and how they could express their Muslimness in a new way. For me, that was not something I expected to find as strong as it was. And that was really the the data point that connected everyone. But why it is important for us to understand is because that very crisis of identity, that very thing that they're doing, this navigation of what it means to be Muslim, is the very thing that allows bad guys to be able to disrupt the way they're thinking by putting forward to them answers that are peer-friendly, that seem authentic, that seem real, that persuade them that in order to be a, quote, real Muslim, that they need to buy into the ideology that these terrorist organizations deploy. Why is it that it is connecting with Muslim millennials in a way that maybe doesn't in other cultures or other religions. What is it that's unique about 
the Muslim millennial? Well, it is a really critical question that you're asking because we all know that every young person grows up, uh, you know, thinking about who they are and what they want to do with their lives. I mean, that's not unique to a religion or an ethnicity or a part of the world. We all ask questions of what the purpose of life is uh, and how they can, how you can live your best life or what you're supposed to be doing. But something remarkable happened on 9-11, uh, aside from the, the tragic uh, circumstance of, of the of the deaths of more than 3,000 people and the aftermath of how it's changed our world, we all know that the world is not the same post 9-11. Not just in terms of the threat of terrorism, but the way in which we think about each other, uh, what we think about communities, how we think about identity and belonging. And that has manifested in a very particular way with young Muslims because the fierce attention on being Muslim, on Islam, has been hypercharged. No other group in the world has been looked at the way they have been looked at post 9-11. All day, every day, since 9-11. And with great suspicion. With suspicion, with fierce attention, with people interpreting that part of your identity. You can't get away from it. There's no release. And in that, in that difficult period of time when you're growing up trying to figure out who you are, feeling like everybody's looking at you, people talking about your religion and your, and your expression of culture and ethnic, uh, you know, identity. All of these things happening in real time doesn't allow you to explore who you are in a more natural way. And in addition to all of that, you have these bad actors that are out there trying to recruit young people for their armies. It's a terrible mix. It's a terrible cocktail that we are uh, experiencing. And the component of allowing ideologies of us versus them to be put forward to these young people through the mechanism of, of the last 20 years, the change in technology has allowed in a microsecond information to be passed through your smartphone to make you get answers that you normally would take a little bit of time to sort through and sift through and think about. So all of these things are happening in a really new way. It isn't just because there's something happening particularly in Islam or something unique to Muslims. It's the way the world has unpacked itself post 9-11 that is unfortunate for all of us because the focus the attention, the drive, the commitment, the passion of extremists is fierce. And they aren't relenting. And we have not even deployed the kinds of things that we need to do to make sure that they cannot seize young people and bring them into their armies. You worked under President Bush 43. Mm -hmm. This was in the period just after 9-11. Yeah. Then you were a holdover, essentially, into the new Obama administration. And as is oftentimes the case, there is a suspicion when you transition from one party to the next about anything that came before is automatically suspect. There is a tendency to want to throw out anything that has happened before and just disregard it. That's true whether we're talking about this topic yeah. or any others as it relates right. to public policy. So give me your perspective on that and why that created some difficulties as it relates to what you talk about in the book. Can you imagine a company changing a CEO and everything that came before has just been thrown out and the way they do business just is not the right way? Uh, you would say that's absurd and that's ridiculous. Of course you would want to reanalyze what the choices are, why you're doing a particular thing, you're taking your time to understand what made somebody 
make a decision. And that is a tempered and tested approach to the way we look at things. In the military, it's the same thing. You're not just going to throw out all your plans because somebody else had made them. In, in the case of fighting extremists, we have two components to fighting extremists. One is obviously the military intervention that we need to decimate uh, the physical armies. But on the other hand, how do they recruit? And that concept about the ideological war, how somebody is being recruited, it took the Bush administration some time to get to a place where we had talked through all of the issues within the interagency, what we could do as a government, how do we partner with NGOs, what are we capable of doing, what are researchers saying, I mean, all of these things that you would normally ask. And so by the time we got to the end of the Bush administration, we had begun to see some promise Mm -hmm. of the way to go. Is it also true that it was difficult to understand what the motivations were for people that were joining these extremist groups? The motivations were really important. There was a a lot of back and forth of what so-called experts would say about what was really happening. Many people opined about what they believe to be the real thing, which is why we have had some back and forth within the interagency about what the real cause is and what therefore the solution ought to be. Both Bush and Obama are both presidents who had teams around them that were smart, measured. I mean, I'm not at all suggesting that this was not a hard issue to try to navigate. But what we saw was a slowdown of the commitment to sort of get into the ideological war uh, at pace and and do what we need to do. It took some time in the Obama administration to get to the place where we were actually moving in a forward direction. But I argue in the book, with deep respect to both President Bush and President Obama, that neither administration went all in on the ideological war. It was still, there was a a hesitance to do everything that we could have done at that moment with the tool in our toolbox. Congress, too, did not do what I believe they should have done, which was to push hard on soft power, to say that there's far more that we need to do to stop young people from getting recruited. And why didn't Congress work hand in glove uh, with uh, the the presidents, uh, either Bush or Obama, to say, what do you need on the soft power side? What is the money that you need? And what are the other things that we can be doing to actually facilitate a better strategy, a better approach to the threat that we're facing? Fast forward to where we are now. The threat is far more severe today than it was on 9-11. And I don't think anyone could have imagined on September 12th, 2001, that we would be looking 20 years into the future and we would see a country that had not scaled up everything that we know we can scale to prevent young people from joining extremist groups. I don't think we could ever have imagined that there would have been an ISIS I don't think we would ever have imagined now, bonus, not only do we have (laughs) Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, ISIS, and (laughs) now white nationalists and everything that, that that encompasses, all together pushing the us versus them narratives across the world, the rise of populist movements, the rise of hate, and with all of this going on, that we have been lazy on hate. So it's a very scary a reality that we face today on the kind of extremism that I work on, which is extremist groups that use the name of Islam to recruit. The people that they're trying to recruit are young Muslims. 
They're not recruiting Christians and Jews and Hindus at this moment in time. And if I look at the demographics, the, the, the pool from which they're trying to recruit is one billion strong. Mm. Around the world, there are a billion Muslims under the age of 30, and we have not given them the antibodies in the system to prevent the, the, the ideology from spreading. We have seen all these things that the bad guys use and do uh, to actually recruit in the offline and in the online space. And we are still having conversations today about small amounts of money that we know that non-government organizations can use to scale up what we know. We, we, we can't even agree on that. So we're in a disastrous situation today in terms of leadership in terms of focus, in terms of commitment of going all in and doing this, you still have Congress people and you still have the, the current administration that doesn't really uh, believe in, in soft power the way we know it can work. So I'm very frustrated by the conversations that I hear happening in Washington, but I'm equally you know, concerned that the private sector has not decided that there is a role that they can play when we all know that there is far more that they can do. Uh, I, I, when I was writing this book, what I wanted to be clear to the reader was that the answers here are not just government. As important as government is, I give a lot of solutions on what government could do right now and should do right now. But I also focus very strongly on the private sector because there has been a shift in the way a private companies think about their roles in the world. Mm -hmm. And fighting hate doesn't necessarily seem like something a private sector company should get involved in, aside from obviously the technology companies that are embroiled in a very important conversation right now about hate speech online. Mm -hmm. But we know that, that everything that happens along the movement of identity and belonging starts inside of the home. And it starts in a community. It doesn't start, you know, across the world. It starts at a very localized place. And non-government organizations, communities, teachers, parents, everybody within communities has to come together to fight hate, which includes businesses. So we know that there are programs, there are initiatives, there are educational components. There are a whole host of things that private companies can partner with local communities on. They have incredible amounts of behavioral data that, that sell you a particular drink or allow you to buy a pair of jeans or a pair of sneakers. Those kinds of cultural listening data and information can be paired with non-government organizations that are working on the kinds of programs and initiatives and touch points that young people experience every day to pull them away from being interested in the, uh, in the ideology of hate. What about the role that we as individuals can play? I spend an entire chapter in this book. It's called Dumble Building Dumbledore's Army. Uh, and I, reference to Harry Potter. In reference to <laughs> Harry Potter and, and my hat's off to one of my uh, students when I was teaching a, a, a program at, at Harvard right after I finished uh, the state at the State Department. And a young millennial woman said to me as I was describing to her the power of, a young, uh, of one person to make a difference, she said, Farah, 
you need to tell our generation that you're building Dumbledore's army. And every student in the class started laughing because they got it. They understand that each of us have, if you will, a magic wand to be able to fight hate. And that happens in many, many different ways. You don't need to stand up an initiative, but it's the way in which you think about the other. It's the way you use language. It's the way you conduct yourself. It's the way you teach your child to, you know, think about each uh, people who are different than you. Uh, it is everything. It's how we teach history to ourselves and to our class, uh, you know, our classes as teachers. Uh, it's what happens in terms of learning programs on a day-to-day -day level in a town. It's the art and culture uh, component where you're seeing public artwork and you're seeing diversity is our friend here. And it's not a cute story about what makes America strong. It's not just a line that says diversity matters. It's understanding that the bad guys, any bad guy, wants you to believe that there is a monolith. They want you to believe that there's only one way to be. And that is wrong. Because even if we uh, allow a little space for the conversation that is all right to hate, it opens the floodgates for far more. We cannot, we need to be, do more than just condemn. Condemn is first, but and call out what we see as hateful behavior, be, hateful language, and do more to catalyze the antibodies that we can put into the system to not allow hate to thrive. I look at mayors across America and I ask them to do more. A local mayor can set the stage. A teacher can set the stage. A parent can set the stage. You can set the stage when you're in a line at Starbucks to buy a cup of coffee, how you treat the other. And I urge us all to rethink how we, how we behave, who we are, and how we think about the country we want to belong to. I know that sounds so basic. We shouldn't be having a conversation about being kind and being good to each other, that, and being civil. But here we are in 2019 where civility has, has left us. We are no longer in that moment in time. And if we put our hands up and say, well, that's something that somebody else is gonna have to deal with, we'll never get this done. It's about each of us, each of us owning that particular thing and saying, what can I do today? And, and that's what I urge us to do. You talk about, I want to dig into a few other concepts that are in the book. One is this definition, and I think to your point about education, it's really important because I feel like there's not a deep understanding of what it means to be Muslim, what it means to be a Muslim American. And I want you to talk in a couple minutes about your own experience. But before we get there, this notion of halal, and a term that I think you coined called halalization. Am I saying yes, that correctly? Right. Okay. What that means and what people should know and how do you differentiate between sort of the troublesome piece versus the piece that is an expression of identity? How, how should we be thinking about that? I love uh my job as special representative to Muslim communities because I was able to go, as I said, to nearly 100 countries on behalf of our nation, talking to tens of thousands of Muslim youth around the world and learning and hearing directly from them about what it meant to be Muslim on the planet, uh, what it meant to be particularly a Muslim millennial. And that was 
eye-opening for me because I talked about the fact that the commonality that I saw around the world was this question of identity, who am I? And and that that was critical. That was very important. So uh, whether you're a Muslim in, in Suriname or you're a Muslim in Surabaya, you're having these same feelings. And I thought, how um, amazing. You know, yes, they're all digital natives. They're all connected and they're all using social media platforms to show pictures and share expressions of Muslimness, whatever that might mean. But it was profound for me because Islam has been on the planet for 1400 years. And the expression of the religion is wildly differentiated depending on where in the world you are, what the history of the place is, you know, it's not even what a country is like, it's even, you know, neighborhood to neighborhood, just the way, uh, you know, a, a Lutheran in Houston is different from a Lutheran in Berlin. It is not the same. Uh, so we have to understand that, that Islam obviously is not a monolith, but, and, and the expression of how often you pray or what you, how you dress or what you eat or how, what your customs are, all of this is wrapped up, obviously, in your expression of religion. Um, and one one thing that was really uh, remarkable was I was seeing that instead of showcasing that diversity in a way that would actually build the antibodies that I'm talking about in the system that wouldn't allow an extremist to come in, extremists want you to believe that there is an us versus them. They want you to believe that there's one way to be a Muslim and it's their way. They want to tell you how to eat. They want to tell you how to pray. They want to tell you how to dress and how to relate day to day. And their version is the only version. They have no space for anything else. Well, that's not the real world. <laughs> and we want to reject that. And we want to be able to say, live your expression out loud in any way that you want. What we have seen in a post 9-11 world with all of this going on, these conversations about what it means to be Muslim, that there's been a hyper interest in that expression of Muslimness that has co corresponded to in a very odd way with sort of a lifestyle brand. Mm. Um, and that's the piece that was surprising for me in terms of expression. So places that I would go in the world that have had hundreds of years of Islamic history, who have been doing things a very particular way or talking a very particular way or eating very particular things, have rejected all of that stuff to absorb something that they seem to believe is the real Islam. And uh, that uniformity is an expression of the fragility of identity. And I found it to be remarkable that the U.S. government, and by the way, it's no other government in the world, when we assess what's happening, we aren't looking at the cultural cues. We aren't culturally listening or socially listening. And, and we're not doing what a, a company that sells you something would do, which would be really what's coming down the pike, what's the trend, how are people behaving? We don't have a function within government that does that. We we are very factual. We, we, we sort of stay in our lane and we, we don't go beyond that. Even if somebody were to say, I noticed that this I was in such and such place 20 years ago and it's different than today, we don't know what to do with that data, okay? And what I saw in, in the expression of this term halalization was this uniformity that people, that young people were so uncomfortable, that they were so keen on making sure that people saw 
that they were being Muslim, that that it turned into this lifestyle brand, the way, you know, the way you would see people buy into a particular look, or uh, I'm an Apple person, and I'm a this person, or I'm a hipster, or I'm, a, you know, you, you kind of absorb that whole thing. So mm-hmm. women were dressing in a uniform way around the world, even though it was not their public, it was not something that was customary for them. They were deciding to, to suggest that not only did they want to showcase that they were being Muslim by the way they were dressing or what they were doing, but they wanted their peers. This is the most important part. They wanted their peers to see that they were doing this too. So they wanted to be in the in-group. That is a remarkable change that has happened. And we don't know quite what to do with it, except to say, and I'm not making a, 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 you know, any kind of opinion about how to express your Muslimness and this is what you must wear. This is my, I'm just simply saying what I saw around the world was a change in expression. What I saw was a uniformity. What I am seeing consistently is a rejection of an erosion of ancient diversity within heritage and expression. And I'm seeing the, the skill with which bad guys are able to move forward and to tell um, to tell young people that in order to be a Muslim, this is the this is the only way you can you can express it. Uh, I I find that really dangerous, uh, and I find it really troublesome when I'm looking at the larger pictures around around the expression of us and us versus them. How does that play out in the U.S. context? Well, in the post-9-11 context of the last 20 years, the conversations in America are unprecedented. Uh, We, if you will remember, 30 years ago, nobody was waking up wondering and seeing and talking and expressing themselves around being Muslim, having this deep and real conversation about what it means to be Muslim. One of the things that uh, has been striking in the the years since 9-11 is the need to consistently talk about that aspect of of the of your identity. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we we are facing a situation where we have the hate on the rise in our country and obviously in Europe and in other parts of the world. But this uh, this sense of because this person is Muslim, they must be. We have these caricatures in our mind about what people who are Muslim uh, or, or, you know, express their religion in that way must eat and do and live. And, and so it's it's very strange. It's a very strange time in America. But there are some things also that, uh, that are striking to me as we've had this conversation post 9-11. Most Americans, including Muslims, who are American, have very little knowledge about the history of Islam in our country. It's a very heated conversation that we're having politically about immigrants, about the other. And what's happened is this conversation about being Muslim in America has been wrapped into that conversation as well. Let me put some facts on the table. Islam came to this country with the slaves. It has been here since the beginning of our nation. We do not teach that in schools. And imagine if we did. Imagine if we were not speaking about this particular segment of the American Muslim, American population as just coming over and being new to our country. We don't talk about the fact that America, in fact, is the most diverse group of Muslims anywhere in the world, which is extraordinary. And that in our country, churches and synagogues and temples and mosques can be side by side on a street. And that our freedom of religion is a value that we hold dear as Americans. 
and that we live it very differently out loud. Instead of going from strength to strength in our nation, we have turned this into a completely difficult, challenging conversation that people get all caught up in. Mm -hmm. And that turns to the question that you were talking about in terms of what we expect people to wear and expect people to do. I'm not making an opinion at all. I don't have an opinion. I, I think each human should choose to express the religion any way they want, if they want to wear a bindi or they want to wear a cross or they want to wear a yarmulke or they want to wear a headscarf or whatever they want to do, that's their business. It's not our business to tell people how to dress. But what I feel ha is is that we are uh, we are judging and we are uh, expecting particular expressions of being Muslim to be the norm and what you must do. And there's sort of an internal conversation that's happening, which is also transferring into, because of the rise of hate, uh, when you see somebody who is dressed a particular way, you it is an easy thing to be able to lash out because they, they look according to what some believe to be an authentic expression of, or it's the other. So it, it's all wrapped up in a really dangerous, toxic mix today. Growing up as a young American Muslim today is very different than post nine, uh, pre 9-11. And we've got to own it and we have to understand why that is and what we can do to stop this, this, this fierce attention on uh, creating another another norm of us versus them, and it and it's it's devastating to think about young kids who are growing up being asked in school to talk about uh, people like Osama bin Laden uh, because they expect these young children to be able to tell us why a terrorist is doing what he's doing because he's calling out Islam as his his um, radicalization call. I mean, it is really really devastating. Um, we have some real. Uh, really serious conversations to have as Americans about what we think is acceptable behavior, and we have not done that. Talk to me about the bridge between extremism, you know, the appeal of extremism, all the way to lost humanity, where you're willing to take human lives in service to a cause. How do you get from a to see. What is this bridge in between? It's really important to ask that question, but I want to marry it with a larger a larger reality um, for just a human in general. The human brain does not develop until the age of 24. And we have not applied our knowledge, our behavioral science knowledge to this problem of radicalization the way we should. What's happening around a person's identity and what they're willing to do and what they see, you know, there's knowledge we can learn from child soldiers. There's knowledge we can learn from gangs, where there's knowledge we can learn about how young people take away this sense of right and wrong and how they manipulate that thought process in their brain to actually erode what we would imagine to be just very basic human things you know it's you know killing another human is is not acceptable but what happens during that process is important for us to understand and disrupting that process so that we are using the very best knowledge from behavioral scientists and child mind adolescent experts and others to help us realize why they believe and why they cognitively make those choices to do x y or z is important we aren't doing that. It feels like the bad guys understand that better than we do. Well, they're going peer to peer. 
The bad guys are in fact not people who are in their 70s and 80s and 50s who are trying to manipulate a 16 year old kid. That is not how this is happening. And we've got to get serious here. It's peer to peer, which is why they're outdoing us at every turn. It's why they're the, the quality of their messages, the kind of messages they, they use, how they recruit one-on-one, -on -one, they're going after it the way they know they can move their peers. peers Young people are not going to their parents and their grandparents to express their identity and who they are. I mean, obviously they do not. There's a chapter in the book that I call Shake Google because to me, I see these young kids going to get answers from the medium that they believe is authentic and credible, which is an online, you know, expression. So whether it's a it's whether it's YouTube, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Instagram, whether it's Snapchat, whatever the 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 the, the form is an image, a, a soundbite, a, a, you know, a, a back and forth conversation, whatever begins to hook them to go forward, they're listening to their peers tell them what to do. So they can be convinced to do a whole lot of things that are just horrifying. I mean, when you look at the videos of ISIS teaching children to behead, using Mickey Mouse dolls, you know, your blood curdles inside of you just cannot believe that that is even happening. But think about it, a seven-year-old, a 10-year-old child, they're children, their brains are not mature yet. They're looking to others, they're formulating, you know, things as they speak. So we've got to be serious about the threat, what, what it is that this is happening. We cannot remove ourselves from this, looking at it going, how could that even happen? Or what, yeah, you know, we made those mistakes right after 9-11. We said, well, surely the person who gets radicalized to do this must be poor. We find out obviously that that's not true. Surely we said they must be really uneducated because if you're educated, you couldn't possibly make that choice. Well, guess what? That's not true. We also, interestingly, calculated that the only people who could get recruited were men. So we have missed the boat on all of these things based on what we seem to believe is a realistic and credible way of understanding this. You got to throw all that away. These are young people who are searching for identity and belonging who are being lured in by people who are their peers in, in the way that they know how to bring them in. And, and the only way we are going to be able to stop this is if we use all of our assets, meaning understanding what behavioral scientists have to say, what, uh, what we know is happening within communities, what we have market tested, what we know on every component here of what will disrupt the ability for a young person to find this ideology appealing. This all makes perfect sense <laughs> when you present it this way. But to be quite honest, and part of why I found the book so incredibly appealing is that you're presenting this information in a very straightforward, well-researched way. How has the book been received? It's important to say that in every conversation I've had in the two months that this book has been out, people have been very keen on, on finding their own agency to fight hate. And that's an important takeaway from this. Uh, like you, they have found it extremely uplifting and reasonable and uh, sobering in terms of what we haven't done and what we can do um, and should be doing. There's been a lot of frustration that, in fact, these things seem really obvious. And why hasn't 
our government taken on non-lethal <laughs> means to stop the recruitment. Why this is this is not costing human life? We've spe- spent six trillion dollars in the war on terror thus far, and and we've spent microscopic amounts of money on what we would call the ideological war. So and the all problem's of, worse, and and it's the problem is worse. But in addition to all of that, what I haven't seen is I haven't seen two things happen. One. I haven't seen the mainstream media take this book on and say, this is a book that is filled with solutions right now based on somebody who was in this from the very beginning, that doesn't pull her punches, that says everything that needs to be said about what government, what business, and what regular citizens can do at this very moment. I'm not Pollyanna. I'm not dreaming of the world that I wish I had. I'm telling us right now, here's what we need to do today. And you're also not writing it as a Republican or a Democrat. You are writing this as an objective person who's actually lived in this space as a Muslim American who's also worked in government and done a ton of research. You're writing it from that perspective. Exactly. Um, And I think that's what's also incredible to me, that you have an authentic voice who was a political, uh, as you said, for both Republicans and Democrats. I do, I'm not a political being. I am lucky to have served my country in, in two different administrations. Actually, three. I served for H.W. Bush as well. But what I want to see is I want to see people talking about not just the doom and gloom. I want them to understand that the person that our government put forward to work on countering violent extremism at the grassroots way back in the Bush administration as the first person ever to do this kind of thing and to build the kinds of networks of like-minded thinkers around the world who were working on combating violent extremism is saying to the world, let me tell you everything that I've seen and let me tell you what we must do. I would hope that we would see uh, both media and um, the American public take this book on and and to make it a reality, to to understand that this is the playbook of what we can do uh, as we wring our hands and say that there's a rise of hate. This is the playbook on, on how we can defeat it. Let's transition and talk a bit more about you personally. You grew up in Massachusetts. You are Muslim American. Talk a bit about your background. Uh, I did grow up outside of Boston and I had a wonderful uh, education in in Boston and a wonderful childhood. My mom is a now retired, but she is a physician. She is a pulmonologist. She ran a county hospital uh, outside of Boston, which, and I mentioned this because she was a huge role model, obviously, for me growing up, seeing a woman who was not only, you know, uh, really dynamic and interested in um, making a difference and being kind to people and compassionate, but also somebody who said to me repeatedly growing up how important it was to give back. And and public service was very much a part of the way in which uh, she thought about, uh, you know, her, her role in the world, but also what is possible to do in this country. Uh, I uh, I was not born in the United States. I was born in northern India. I came to the Boston area as a baby. Um, but but that early experience of um, giving back, uh, seeing my mom give back the way she did, and being educated at, in a very privileged way, I will say, but with people who were, prim- I mean, they were not Muslim. Uh, I went to a private school outside of Boston. And I say this because I was never treated differently. 
I was never treated differently. I never, ever thought about my Muslim identity in any kind of weird way. I never thought I'm never going to belong. I never thought I, I don't have the right to be here. I was surrounded by people who were education was really important and we were pushing ourselves, you know, and, and I, so I was very privileged that way. But I was also very active. Uh, and I, both in high school and in college, uh, I was really active with student government. And, and I say that because it allows you to listen. It allows you to hear what your peers are thinking and doing and how you can make a difference in what you're doing. So that's a very much, that's very much a part of me. The Muslim part was very personal. That was a very personal part of me. I, you know, I grew up going to a mosque uh, in Quincy, Massachusetts. I mean, it's one of the oldest mosques in America, actually. And that would happen on Sundays because we are in America and people don't go to mosque on Fridays. You know, you don't leave school to go to mosque on Fridays. But um, we would go to Quran study in the in the morning in Arabic, uh, you know, learning how to how to read the Quran, and and we would have religious classes, and then we'd go to prayer on Sunday, and I did that all growing up. But that was my that was my my personal that was that belonged to my family that belonged to who we are, um, and it it wasn't sort of something that I wore on my sleeve because I found it to be very personal. I found religion to be very personal. It still is for me, person, you know, from from a very personal point of view. I, so I grew up with very strong values around humanity, around compassion, uh, around equality and dignity. Uh, dignity was a very important part of the way in which I saw both my mother and my, my uncle, who was her brother, who was a thoracic surgeon in Boston, talk about the other. My uncle used to say, I I'm a heart surgeon. I hold a human heart in my hand. And there's no difference between a heart of a Jew and a Hindu and a Christian, and a Muslim, and everybody else. That was who we were as a family. That's how we thought about things. So when I was, when I was growing up, it didn't occur to me to think any differently about another person. It didn't occur to me that I had to be somebody different as a Muslim. It didn't occur to me that um, the people were going to look at me differently. I knew that I had to work hard on the education side. I knew that I had to be the best person I knew how to be. But that was it. And it's different now communicating to my audience of largely women, what message would you want them to know about what it means to be Muslim in America? Well, I think bringing it home is really important. Uh, and uh, understanding for us today as a country, there are so many difficult conversations that we are having around who we are as Americans and what we stand for and being compassionate in those conversations and not putting on to every one of those conversations an accusatory tone that that other is responsible for X, Y, or Z. It's a hard time for everyone in America. Mm -hmm. It is a real, the navigation of who we are is being, not being tested in a, I don't think we're gonna end up in a terrible place that the country, the values that we, our, our founding fathers stood for are, are gonna go away. I think we're gonna get through this. But for, for young Muslims, especially in America today, this isn't the America that we remember. I remember growing up. This is a difficult, a very toxic conversation around owning your religion. And I want us to be more compassionate. My message is think before you speak about 
people uh, in, in sort of a derogatory way. Put yourself in their shoes. Think about the fact that every single day since 9-11, the word Islam or Muslim has been on the front pages of papers online and offline relentlessly 24-7. And no other group has had that kind of attention. And it has changed the way we feel about being uh, expressing being Muslim in America today. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that a little bit of a grace in, in how we handle all of this and to do more to actually build a bridge, to communicate, to talk, to, to see how we can help each other. And this is not, by the way, just about being Muslim in America. It's about being American. What's your advice for how the average person can better educate themselves? on this topic? Well, one of the things that I urge everyone to do is obviously read my book so that you can sort of step into the role that I, I, what I saw around the world and and what was remarkable in in this too was the many, many, many people who, uh, Muslim and non-Muslim, who want to do more, that there are people in your community that want to fight hate. And you've got to build the coalitions of people who do this. You don't have to do this by yourself. It, it doesn't have to be boiling the ocean. It seems like a tremendous, complicated challenge to, to fix this, but it starts at the local level. And we've got, to, we've got to build those local coalitions. It's one of the things that Americans do the best. Secondly, boy, there are some great non-government organizations in this world that are working on this day and night. Help them. Figure out what you can do, whether it's a donation, whether it is something that they need that you can provide. Try to figure out who in your community is actually trying to fight hate. What can you do to do that? Farah, what is the impact that you hope to have overall? I want to see a change in the way we understand this issue and that we we know how important it is to have the best military in the world. I absolutely believe it is critical uh, that we focus on making sure that our troops get what they need, that we have the very best military. However, we have got to be serious about non-military power. And we cannot look at the non-military side as an appendage to something we might want to do. We've got to be as serious about soft power as we are with hard power. It is a non-lethal source of change. And it isn't some set of ideas that have no promise. These have been tested. We know that what we can do to get to, to move behavior with a non-kinetic, a non-military, a non-physical component. Why aren't we doing this? It costs far less money. It is non-lethal. And it is it has the potential to revolutionize the way our communities feel. So I want us to get real about yeah. that. We ask each person who comes on the podcast for a single piece of advice, a life hack, or a mantra. If you had to distill it down to one thing that's kind of your North Star as you think about your journey and your life, what might that be? I think one of the things that is important, and I want to speak to the to the women, um, the young women who are listening to your podcast, that it is essential that we are owning our, our own sense of agency, that you are not trying to be somebody else, that you understand the power that you yourself have. And I see, I see that in so many ways that when we 
understand our own strength, it means that you have to listen to yourself first, that you need to be quiet with yourself and know who you are. And, and for me, that's been really important that I've had to really think about what the, what the pieces of me are, why I am passionate about the things I'm passionate about, what moves me to do something, why I will go really strong on pushing on a particular thing throughout my life, not just on this issue of fighting hate, but on anything that I've ever done. It's about knowing who I am and knowing what I'm capable of. Farah. Thank you. Thank you. It's been so such a pleasure. Much. I really appreciate Thank you. it. This is great. Thank you. The book is called How We Win: How Cutting-Edge Entrepreneurs, Political Visionaries, Enlightened Business Leaders, and Social Media Mavens Can Defeat Extremist Threats. To learn more about Farah, you can visit our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There will include links to Farah's terrific book as well as her bio and some photographs from today's visit. Also on our website, you'll find links to other amazing women like Farah, who are leading, providing insights, and having a positive impact on our world every single day. As always, thanks so much for listening. <music>